Assalamu alaikum, Sayyid uh, Samir Ali. We have you from Milwaukee. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah, Shaykh Alhamdulillah, it's an honor for you to accept our invitation here on this podcast. Well, it's a pleasure for me to be here, to see you again, yeah. I haven't seen you in so long in Milwaukee. What are you doing there? Alhamdulillah, I've been here in the Midwest a few years. I came originally like 10 years ago, and then I went back, and then I came back a little bit. And then, so I've been here about almost eight years. And uh, it's... uh, you know, it's a good place. It's a it's a small congregation, small community. But I, but I like the Midwest. The culture is different. Uh, the people's attitudes are, are kind of unique compared to the coasts. So, uh, alhamdulillah, I like it. What's what's different about it? The the attitude. I mean, you obviously have traveled the world. You live in many places. Um, but but I think the Midwest is a little less high strung. You know, people from the coasts. Are are kind of just fast paced and they're just always trying to get something done. But in the Midwest, they're a little bit authentically friendly and genuine, and they're a little bit more relaxed. The, the pace of life is a little bit more slow here, which I like. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, w- yeah. what are you doing there? Like as as a scholar in Milwaukee, what are you doing? Yeah. So I uh, I'm I'm with the congregation with the masjid, with the jamaat with a uh, Hosseinia here. And I serve as the alim in this in this uh, community. I'm the only uh, Shia alim who lives here in Milwaukee and all of Wisconsin. So that's a unique role, and it's got it's your responsibilities. I am available for 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 some online classes that I do with the folks here. When things were not as crazy with the virus, we were having Juma. We alhamdulillah have Sunday school, and we moved to an online platform. So I've been involved with all those activities and then in the speeches and month of Ramadan and Muharram. So those are some of the things that I do uh, here with the community. Okay, and you, you mentioned that you do chaplaincy work as well, is that right? Yeah, so I've been a chaplain as well. I've completed my training as a chaplain and on my way to, inshallah, get board certification. But uh, I've been, in, I got involved in chaplaincy uh, before coming here, but then when I moved here, I had the opportunity to complete my training, and uh, I am one of the Muslim chaplains in this area. So I've, I served at a hospital, I've served at uh, hospice, and I've served at university as a chaplain. Okay, so that's interesting. So what what is a chaplain, by the way? So what what exactly does this role entail in the state? So Sheikh Hamid, the uh, chaplain actually is uh, a a modern or a yes a very modern profession or a field which came about uh, really hundred years ago, a little over hundred years ago, especially with World War One. Uh, it is the kind of academic and clinical manner of providing emotional and spiritual support and assessment to somebody. Mm. So, so what basically happened was you had these Christian um, pastors and priests and, and different roles because within the different denominations within Christianity, there's a lot of diversity in the clergy, right? Mm-hmm. And all of them had to come to the, uh, to the aid or to the support of, of, of people in the battlefield, of soldiers. And they had to make kind of a universal language of, of assessing the emotional and the spiritual needs of those people. So they came up with the idea that we have this living human document, which is a human being, and we have to provide, uh, there are three P's with which uh, pastoral care or chaplaincy comes to, to somebody. One of them is permission, that they have to permit you to be there as a support. The second thing is um, you have the presence, you provide a presence to them, and then the third thing is prayer. So if they, if they're, you know, not everyone wants these three things, but those are the three main things that chaplaincy uh, provides to them. Yeah. And uh, there's different chaplaincies. There's chaplains in the military. Today in America, you know, we're talking 2020 Muslim chaplains. 
uh, here are in the military, they are in the reserves, they are in universities, so academic chaplaincies, they have done that as well. And then there's the medical field with the hospital and the hospice. So the chaplain is kind of a clinician which which assesses the the sixth vital sign, which is the emotions. So imagine you are in a, uh, a hospital, someone is in the hospital, right? And they're Muslim. Um, and then, or as generally, not even... Not even someone who may be a person of faith. You're uncomfortable. You're not sure what's going to happen with your diagnosis. Maybe it's something you came in for routinely. Maybe it's something you came in for uh, urgently. But the nurse and the doctor, everyone was do, will do the inter interventions on your body, right? Mm. Is this broken? What is your blood pressure? What meds do you need? And that's what their job is. Uh, but but a chaplain really is to provide the presence. How are you doing emotionally? How are you reacting to being in this place? For example, in a hospital, which is which is not your home or hospice, where someone is you know has terminal illness which cannot be cured, but is given comfort. So a chaplain is kind of to assess all those intangible and unsaid uh, things. That's great. That's amazing. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's uh, so you go. People are diagnosed, for instance, in the hospital with cancer, or someone right. has you know just learned they have a fatal disease, or whatever the case is, and they need that emotional support. The hospital will call you, and you'll go over there and provide that support. Yes, uh, something like that. It doesn't have to be someone who's fatal, fatally, or terminal, or anything like that. It can be if someone could have come in just for stitches on the hand. Mm. Um, so, so it doesn't have to be someone who is terminal or ill. There, there's a chap, there's a children's hospital, for example. They have uh, chaplains for that. Um, so all those, all it can be any kind of any any amount of stay at a hospital, yeah. or if you're working for hospice, it can be someone's home as well. Yeah. Um, so, so always being aware of that where you are and where that person is emotionally, and just kind of encouraging them and guiding them toward realization of those emotions. Yep, and then, um, I just forgot what I was going to ask you. How crazy is that? <laughs> <laughs> so, are you on call always for this, or is this is this certain hours that you work? Cause I just no, it's, 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 a, it's a 9 to 5 or 8 to 4, yeah. and then at times you can be on call, and you can be called at two in the morning when someone has passed away, and, and the family is grieving, and the nurse is trying to get all the meds squared away, and call the funeral home, and the family is very emotional, so they will call you to 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 take care of that, you know, grief and mourning, for example. Yeah, that I, people have. So, I think so that's an amazing role. That's an amazing yeah. role to play, right? Yeah. That's definitely a needed area. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, I studied psychology, so yes. I feel that these two roles are similar. They're not the same, obviously, but they're kind of, they're both looking at the psychological or emotional well-being of the person in need. So that's... Certainly, I mean, yeah, you have the experience as a, as a life coach and in psychology, right? So so how is it that you uh, you come to the aid? I mean, are you, you're a clinician that way, right? Yeah, so for me, I'm not on call in a hospital. Right now, presently, right. I work at a school, but let's say I was working at a clinic, right? Right. So in a clinic, I, it would be by appointment basis, and people would come, and they would disclose whatever problem they have, and then we would work on identifying their core issues, and then mm. create an intervention plan for them. So it's more of an ongoing process where I'm assuming the chaplaincy role is right there, crisis management at that moment trying to provide that emotional support, but I don't know how many subsequent sessions you'd be holding with them afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what setting you work in. For, for chaplains, if you, if you work in a hospital setting, it might be just one encounter, or it might be prolonged. If you're in a hospice, which I like, is you stay for longer with the, with the, with the patient and their family, you get to know them, you even are called to attend their funeral or memorial service. So... It, Chaplain is kind of halfway between psychology, counseling, and clergy. Mm. It's kind of a bit between those two roles. If clergy is for a certain uh, ordination, certain denomination, and psychologist is kind of just clinician without the religious background, chaplain is kind of between. It has a religious background and then the training as a clinician. Mm. I love it. Like, yeah. I really, really love that. If I was in the States, I'd definitely look into that. 
Um, Definitely. So you said hospital, hospice, and university. These are the three that you've uh, worked at. Yeah. That I've had experience with, yeah. 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 They're very different. All three are very different. Yeah, I would imagine. So in university, what does it look like at a uni? University, uh, mashallah, we do have a good number of Muslim chaplains here in America and universities. Uh, we do have um, a couple who are more interested from our uh, Shia denomination that are also in university uh, and they're training. So university is more on the academic side. You know, you are kind of someone who represents the faith and and provides access to the student body. Um, and then you are present at all these these. Um, moments, these events uh, that are happening throughout the academic year and you're attached to kind of the academic life and then you provide space for you kind of attend Juma and then you assess the students and what they're going through. For example, recently with all this uh, online learning, you know, there was kind of a curve for the students at the university to get used to it. Uh, so that is the role at the university. Awesome. Awesome. That's really amazing. I you know, I feel that that's very similar to the to the role that I'm playing at the school that, mm -hmm. that I'm in. And I'm a chef, yeah. you know, from an academic perspective, it would be similar. Um, what about like prisons and things like that? Is that something you'd be looking to get into or? There are chaplains for prisons. I haven't had any experience with that. Mm. So it's, each, each one of these uh, categories requires a different kind of specialization to a degree and a different personality. Yeah. Yeah. So are you, are you, what kind of school are you at? Uh, I'm working at a Shia school here in Australia. Right. Yeah, so. And you're a counselor for them? Counselor, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's inter right. it's a good work, alhamdulillah. And, to, you know, I love the school and I love the environment that the school has created. And it's definitely a, a good way to help the community in whatever way I can. Right. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Mashallah, I'm sure they're happy to have you there, yeah. It's an amazing, yeah. amazing opportunity. All right, Very so good. I know you wanted to discuss the role of the scholar in the West, and I could see that like, both of us, we're not playing necessarily that traditional role, although both of us are attending centers, giving speeches and classes and things and things of that nature, but we're also going beyond, and you're doing chaplaincy yeah. work, I'm doing psychology work, and we see that there's, there is maybe a shift in perspective on what the traditional role of a Islamic scholar should be in a Western setting, right? So I know you wanted to discuss this. What's your opinion on what we should be doing as ulama in the West? Yes, I mean, before we, uh, when we prepare to, to, to have this discussion, I think this is one of the things that, that the paradigm has shifted, right? So in the 80s and the 90s, um, and at times when we were growing up, I remember in New Jersey, which has had a long-standing Muslim and Shia population for many years. You know, I have family that came in the 60s and even earlier, uh, and they've been there whole whole generations have been born and raised there. The paradigm of the alim was very traditional in the sense that the alim was kind of confined more to the center and the family, you know, the masjid and the family. And the qualifications of the ulama were the same qualifications that we have today. I haven't been to the Hausa and studied and knowing the, the traditional ulum and the sciences. But their occupation, their um, engagements or their priorities of the ulama at that time were different, right? They were more about just getting the center going. Just let's have Juma Thursday night, Sunday school. And if they could sustain that for 15, 20 years then they had reached their goals, which is great. And they gave us a lot. I'm very, very thankful for them for for bringing us up. I mean, I benefited from those Sunday schools and those Jumas with the ulama that I spent time with. But that paradigm has shifted now because now many, many, many small cities. Here in Milwaukee, the center is maybe 15 years old, which is not very old. Um, and then there's another one, which is even younger. But I think in a place like New Jersey, where it's been around since the 80s and 90s, the paradigm has, has shifted of the of these of the traditional alim. It's no longer, or it's very rarely, it's just that you know, center and activities, and and then the alim. I think it's it's more diverse now. The ulama themselves come from backgrounds that are diverse. 
Uh, they are interested in different things. They have different qualifications, either that is academia or that is chaplaincy or that is that is law or anything else. Uh, so that's really what's what's happened within within the last decade, I really think. Yeah. And what do you think about like, like, for instance, let's say let's look at two different roles. Right. So you have the traditional role where, as you said, has benefited the community in the past, like Obviously, there's no downplay of that role. The role does play a specific purpose, and it does help the community that you know the scholar is in. So let's say, for instance, I was at a, I was at a center in the UK, right? And they right. had the traditional... Um, uh, it was a traditional Punjabi-Pakistani center. They had the right. Sayyid there from Pakistan, barely spoke English, gave amazing energetic lectures in Urdu. And right. And the, the elders, you know, loved him, right? And the youth respected him as well, obviously. But he couldn't really connect to the youth, per se, because of the language barrier and the culture barrier. So he was pretty much for the older generation there. And they benefited greatly from him. Like, he kept the center going. He kept it alive. The center, would, people would come on major occasions. And he'd hold prayers there every day as well. And there'd be a small congregation that would come. But members of this of that community said, you know what, we need more. We need, it's good that we have him, but we need someone else. So they actually asked me to go there. So the first place I went after home was the center in the UK. And right. they wanted me to play a role where I'm giving English lectures to the youth. And also on the major occasions, give English lectures to the entire community. But more kind of connect with the youth and bring them in and make them more active in the in the center so i mm. just just by the fact that i spoke english and i was younger at that time and i was able to connect to the youth well that you saw after a short period of time youth started coming to the center a lot more and it started to thrive and, right and i saw that you know there is a, a, a difference and just like if i was the only person there i don't think i would connect to the elders of that community and that mm. might that might harm that that segment of the community where that say it connects to them, but then I connect right. to a different, a different crowd. So obviously right. like it's not a one size fit all. And I think right. successful centers will have more than one person working there. They don't have to all be, you know, 20 years from the house of students, but you right. have more people that are targeting different areas because I feel, as you said, the community has become much more diverse and, it's impossible to play the role of everything right now. I agree. I think it's impossible and, and, and the congregations are uh, realizing that that it's impossible for one person to, to, to play the role. And what ends up happening, for example, in this community here is that they, they you know, when I was invited and I came, it was for English. But I realized that there was a there's a large segment of Iraqis who are uh, refugees, who uh, speak Arabic, even the youth, their English was not very good. So so I would give my lectures in two languages. I would have to go English and Arabic, English and Arabic consistently, and that served the needs of that population. But then there's a population that speaks only Urdu. Or, so we are kind of... I think that centers are harmed because they take this blueprint... And they create this blueprint and they put that, you know, carrot in front of the cart. They say, we are going to just be stuck with this blueprint. We must have English and there's no deviation. We must, growth will come gradually. Change will come gradually, you know. And the center that I came to here initially, right across that was a church. It's still there, a church. And they have a youth pastor. And then they had a regular pastor, right? So you do need that. And then on the, on the side of the ladies, Right. No matter what, I'm leading the prayers. I'm sitting on the mimbar, and I'm a man. I'm not inhabiting the space of femininity in Islam. So my own experience, no matter what qualifications I have, are very limited. So we need female leadership to cater to the needs of the of, of that section. So there's all these different needs. When you sit on the mimbar, you realize there's all these gaps that need to be filled, and why it's impossible for one person uh, to do that. And I think. Successful centers, as you're saying, successful congregations 
are realizing that and are addressing that. Yeah. Now, what about what about qualifications apart from Hausa, right? So, right now we're talking about the scholar who's come from Hausa and is serving the need in the community, at the masjid, for instance, giving giving lectures in English or whatever other language, right? What about providing other services? So, for instance, chaplaincy or yeah. psychology for me or like. I know here in, in Australia, there's a big uh, drug drug and alcohol pr- problem, gambling addiction. Okay. All different types okay. of addictions are unfortunately growing in the community, right? Right. And a person from Hausa can address it. Like they could talk about how drugs are bad in Islam, but they don't have any experience or expertise in trying, in trying to eradicate addiction from a person or decrease the their dependency on a drug right they wouldn't know how to do it all they 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 could say you know they could try to attach 100 percent to this to the spiritual side which is good but there's yeah. other there's other practical steps that need to as well now mm. that's obviously just one one example right but yeah i know other scholars will you know, for instance, we have another scholar that I work with, and he has a, an engineering degree, and he's very strong in science, and he's trying to figure out ways to incorporate Islamic principles and Islamic um, just points about Islam and religion into the science curriculum at, at one of the schools here in Sydney, right? Right. You have... Right. You have other scholars who have entered the academia field and are, you know, are progressing there. And you have scholars that are doing all other types of things. Do you think a scholar needs to be, needs to have a second, a secondary skill or a degree in a university or something in order to be effective in this society now? Or what do you There's think? two things. Sorry, I was just answering a, a text. I didn't mean to be distracted, so uh, they wouldn't bother me but uh i think that there's two things one is see what you're saying and what you're what you're referring to is very important because obviously at the forefront of any congregation any center any masjid there must be energy that leads it forward there must be energy good leadership is anticipating the needs of the future and addressing them now right basira is very important in islam and basira means planning for the future right i mean islam digging those wells which stay until today in Medina, are benefiting thousands and thousands of people. Right? He dug those wells in the time that he had, you know, Abiyar Ali are famous, so that people would get that water. And of course, metaphorically, that's a reference to the knowledge that the Ahlubayt gave. But that front line, that leadership line, where have seen in successful communities, in successful Shia and Sunni communities, the Sunni community here is very much Allah successful. Because there's a, a panel, a group of, there's a lawyer, there's doctors. They are really investing their qualifications and energies back into the community. So to expect that only from the alim is unfair to the alim, and that's being blind to potential. Mm-hmm. Good leadership is not one person. Good leadership is a group. So if, if I were to say, we are going to lead this community, this congregation, this center, it would be an alim with their religious background and another qualification simply because that now is allowing the alim to be diverse be that you know chaplaincy teaching academia counseling whatever the alim chooses or business or law right i know ulama in this country who have law degrees now mashallah so they're practicing lawyers and they're ulama so 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 i think that speaking about the alim himself that role has grown, and at the same time, you need that diversity. You need, you know, the alim with the physician, with, the, you know, we had a very successful program here a few years ago on health because it was myself providing the religious background on what the Marajas say about, for example, death and, you know, end of life. Plus, there was a physician with me from the community who provided his expertise, right? So, so you need that, that cohesion and if there is someone who has a background in education, our Sunday school here is is primarily run by a sister who has who has a degree in education. Good. Right. So that is kind of the paradigm now, which will lead to successful congregations. Mm-hmm. 
I agree with that. And I, I love the, the panel idea. Like, I see, I mean, again, not to knock any center or anything, but I know a lot of centers in the past and still present, their panel, right, their board of trustees or whatever they call them, right, is made up of older individuals from the community who might or might not have any qualifications for that role and are more just kind of like grandfathered into it because of their their position and their age and and their kind of influence in amongst the families that that create that masjid or that center right but if you look at it from a more practical point if you're looking at all right what does a center need a center needs a lawyer because yeah. there might be legal issues that will come up. And there will, come will be, yes. Yeah. Yeah. A center needs someone to cater for the emotional needs of the congregation. Yeah. A center needs someone who's versed in education and could help, you know, not only, sec- not only secular but religious education through their, through their training. This, the, the scholar obviously needs to be well-trained and have a good understanding right. of Islam and all of that. Like, that's, that's, key. that's key as well. How's it trained? Um, and whatever else, like even doctors are good and whatever, whatever, you know, an accountant, probably someone who knows how to handle money right. is important. Right, right, right. But like if they if they take a step and think, what is it that we need to take that next step forward and then plan hmm. for that? Like how amazing would that be and how much improvement would we see in these centers? And, and that's, that's going to be the, the role for success. Otherwise, what happens is you stall. And the problem with stalling is you become very comfortable stalling, right? I always imagine I, I, I was in a small plane. I have a friend who's a pilot, and he took us up over New York City. Um, and when we flew over that area, when you're climbing or you're descending, you become anxious because that's when change is happening. But when you're just stalling and floating, that's when you become comfortable. You say, there's no change. I'm okay. There's no turbulence. But that's dangerous. Right? <laughs> Stalling a plane is very dangerous. The same thing with our communities. We love this comfort space of nothing's really happening. This is a safe space. I don't want change. And I'm going to subconsciously create this center where things are going to be grandfathered in. And we're okay because we're having programs. We're okay because we're having programs. And that is a deathly and a very toxic state of being. Yeah, 100%. Because... I have seen that oh, oh, yeah, over and over again. We're having, what are you having programs for? Well, this speaker came, that speaker came. You're not tangibly measuring growth. In any organization for it to be successful, you, you know, you tangibly measure. I teach classes online and I tangibly measure if each participant is actually benefiting or not. And if it's part of their religious education. Why don't we do that in our centers and say if we're not growing and if we're just repeating the same thing over and over again, it's just us talking to each other, ourselves and not meeting the needs. And, you know, the next generation, after this board dies, there really is going to be very difficult for the next generation to step in. And How would you measure growth in a community? Uh, well, yes, the, 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 needs being, the needs being met. The needs being met, you know, there's two different ways of measuring growth. The, the, the traditional paradigm, the less productive paradigm is are people coming or not? That's what they care about. Are people coming? Are people giving money? Are, are, are we getting new speakers and attendance? This is a very superficial way of, 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 of measuring growth. And it really is the wrong way. The better way is are people involved? You know, are people owning up to the needs of the community? Are they participating full-heartedly in the community? Are they going above and beyond? Are they bringing their own skills to give volunteer volunteerism? Right? Yeah. That's are they volunteering their time and their energy? You know, and are, is the infrastructure being built to meet the needs mm. through the center? It can be happening outside in the in the in the community, which is fine. But is the center leading it and is that in the need? No. It can happen in many places with the center and the, and the masjid not being part of it. And it's just happening on its own, which is great. But then there's these two different paths. Yeah. Uh, and then the center and the people lose out. True. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Let me, let me take a step back, right? Because yes, 
obviously both of us have been to Hauza, right? And right now there is many people in the Hauza. Now, with this in mind of what we're talking about and trying to, you know, for, for those who are in Hauza right now or those who want to go to Hauza and then come back and serve the community, right? What do you think in Hauza that we could do? What, what studies should we concentrate on? What, what should we be doing apart from our studies that might help us to fulfill that role of an effective re- religious leader in the West and not just that traditional role that we see has its holes in it? The, the most, most important thing, thing, I think, besides the, the studies... That's, that's the most important. I mean, like you said a couple of times, and I completely agree, that the alim must be qualified, that, that, that we don't have a system. You can go to the house for a month and wear an imamah and come back and be a great speaker and people will follow you. You can be in the house for 20 years and be overqualified and not wear an imamah and people will still think, oh. So, and that's a bit of us. People are for the clothes. They see the external and they're impressed. But someone must really be qualified in terms of being able to you know, specialize in some subject. You know, I like philosophy and I like Quran. I know myself. So those are the things that I focus on when I come to the people. Okay? Someone might be very good in usul al-fiqh and fiqh. Someone might be very good in tarikh. Someone might be very good in something else. So you have to specialize. Second thing that's, that I feel is still lacking to this day, it's changing slowly and a little bit. There is no intentional and deliberate fraternity among the ulama. Mm. You and I talk because you and I cross paths and happen to cross paths and we're friends, which is accidental and not intentional. Right? There is no deliberate, intentional infrastructure of fraternity of ulama saying, this is what we are going to work on. Yeah. There's political divides within the Muslim and Shia community and ulama are really... Uh, instead of being exempt from those political uh, alliances, they are actually leading those political alliances in cases, unfortunately. Mm. Right? Which is creating more division instead of cohesion. Mm. And then that political, uh, you know, or that ideological stance becomes criteria number one for, for, for including or excluding others, which I think is extremely counterintuitive and really not Islamic. Um, and it's done more damage in this country than, than good. So, 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 so that's, that's one thing. And there is no fraternity that, that, you know, yes, there are opportunities. Alhamdulillah, we take advantage of and get to know each other and work together. But there is no system. There are other, I work with people from all different denominations. I mean, on one hand, you have the Catholic Church with a centralized hierarchy and everything, and that is not what I'm advocating for. On the other hand, you have a loose fraternity, for example, in, the, in, in some of the Protestant uh, groups of the pastors that have a conference, that have, you know, they kind of ordinate, ordain each other, and they endorse each other, and they have a system for each other for support. Otherwise, as I realize, and as many Ilama realize, it's a very lonely journey mm. as an alim in a center. It's a very lonely space because you don't have that uh, fraternity or peers who kind of communicate with you, help you, assist you, guide you. Yeah, it's just Alan versus board. And that can be a very emotionally uh, challenging and toxic environment for the Alim and for the board because they're both kind of just isolated and doing this on their own. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I've experienced that over and over again with pretty much every community I've been involved in, where eventually, you know, there's there's a dialogue between myself and the board, and obviously the board has good intentions in their heart, and inshallah my intentions are pure, and we're both trying to serve the community in the way that we think is right, and there'll be disagreements, and there's no one to come in advocate on either side, right? And... I, I know I, I discussed this with other scholars as well. So I was with uh, Sheikh Hussein Meki from um, Denver. I was discussing pretty a, a similar issue with him the other day. And we talk about it. Like we talk about the need to have these groups of ulama and have have a system. But you're right, it doesn't exist. I know when I was in Qom, um, I'm not sure if you were there yet or you were a part of this. But there was a group of a group of scholars that would get together 
around the major speaking times, so before Muharram, before the month of Ramadan, and after. And they would, beforehand, it would be, I'm going to this center and I'm going to talk about this. And then afterwards, this was my experience. Right. And we learned from each other and we picked up points from each other. And, and just that informal kind of dialogue was really helpful to me. Like, I felt that experience-wise, instead of having to experience every little thing on my own, I was able to mm. share the experiences of others and kind of grow through that process. Absolutely. But, but I don't think that's enough. And I don't even think that's happening anymore. Like, I haven't seen anything like that. I know here in Sydney, there's a number of scholars. There's some scholars who don't speak English whatsoever. And then there's, right. then there's the English-speaking scholars. And yes, we do get together from time to time at each other's houses. Not as a whole group, but like I might go visit one of them and hang out with them for a few hours. Um, and we'll see each other on programs that are that are created where there's, you know, a panel of scholars and then we'd see each other there. But apart from that, we don't really have that close relationship where we're planning and we're, we're trying to think of what's the best course of action for us right now in the community, how we can better serve the community, how we could come together and help each other with the problems that we're facing. Exactly. Like you said, it's very lonely. And I agree with that. And, and I, it I, can I, be. Yeah. Um, I don't. I mean, the solution is to create a group, but I don't know how. What the practical steps to creating such a group would be? Well, groups grow organically, right? Again, you know, I'm not someone who believes that you can just make a structure and then push yourself to fill that structure. That's not going to happen. But organically, it has happened in North America, at least in the circles that I'm in. And the ulama has happened, alhamdulillah, which is good. And it's it's because some of the ulama have taken leadership and participated and do that. But I think that if we keep that in our vision for the future as ulama districtly to have a kind of space to discuss our own uh, experiences, our own needs. So that, that, that kind of helps us grow. It, it feeds back into ourselves, you know, uh, whoever, whoever participates, uh, whoever consults with people participates in their experiences and their knowledge, Imam Ali said. So, so, you know, uh, you have to have participation in, 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 in what you think and how you think, and it, it has to be outside of the paradigm of alim versus center. It has to be just a conversation between the ulama to kind of have an idea, and I think we are in a good space to do that because we are not bound by certain, uh, uh, by certain lines. We're not bound by, by things that might be more rigid. Or might keep us strict, but at the same time, we can't be these kind of free, um, you know, away from each other islands. We kind of have to. And I think I'm hopeful that for the future that, that possibly will be happening. Yeah, inshallah. I know myself, when I left Qom, when I was in Qom, I was in contact with many of the ulama inside, you know, inside the Hausa. No one really outside, but just the, just the students of the, of the Hausa that I was there with. As you said, that just, you know, by happenstance, we crossed paths. And then um, after I left, I really didn't have much communication at all with people. Like, And it's my fault. I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily the system. I'm just not good at long-distance relationships with people. And right. it's, it's, it's something that I'm growing into and it's something I'm learning the importance of. But I, ha I didn't really go out and connect with people. I just kind of did my own thing. And then realize, wait a second, I'm alone here. I need, I need to connect with people. Yeah. I need, I need yeah. people who are other scholars and and ask advice. And there were a few scholars that when I would, when I would, you know, when I'd be faced with a dilemma, I'd be able to ask them, and they'd give me their advice. So it, I did have people that I was able to ask, which is good. But mm. I, I need, like, I feel that brotherhood. And as you said, not like the Catholic Church where there's this full like formal type of um, system and yeah like we don't need right. that but no but definitely we need something that that we could come together and there's that uh whatsapp group that i i don't know who made that group but i've been added to it and i know you're there and that's really good i i i don't participate too much but i read everything and i read everything that's going on in you know the different the different subjects that people are talking about and i'm benefiting from that i'm benefiting from just hearing other perspectives on issues that we all are facing. So, 
even something as simple as that is helping. But obviously, I think in the future, more than that would be better. Inshallah. It's a start. It's a start. It is. It really is. It really is. All right. So you mentioned philosophy and I want to pick your brain on something because it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually something that I've been looking at. So when I was at uni, I, they have a philosophy of psychology class. Right, they don't call right. it that. They call it um, metacognition or whatever term they used for it. But basically, what they're doing is they're looking at, you know, Western philosophers and their opinions yeah. of subjects that psychology deals with, and they're trying yeah. to figure out, you know, are, is psychology dealing with it in, in a correct way? Right now, one of the mm -hmm. issues that came up is the interaction between our thoughts and our brain. Right. Mm -hmm. And they used Western psychology and they, they tried to show a distinction between what they call what they term the mind and the brain, right? So the mind is the thinking part of your brain, right? And you had the whole Cartesian theory and all of that, and you had all these things that came up and all these problems that came up. And then one of the issues was that if we consider the mind to be immaterial and the brain to be material, the body to be material, how do these two interact with one another? And they also said that before the term mind was used, the term soul was used. So like throughout history, the term soul kind of morphed into mind and entered the academic discussion in that way. But before it was more a religious discussion. And that got me right. thinking. And I actually, I did the, the essay that I had to do for that course was on this topic. So I was looking at the interaction between the immaterial soul and the material body. And yeah. apparently in psychology, or in, uh, sorry, philosophy, they say that there can't be a direct interaction because the immaterial realm and the material realm don't cross paths, basically. Right? And then there's all these different theories of how that yeah. takes place. So some say they, they don't interact with one another and they don't influence one another at all. And we know Islamically that's wrong because obviously our soul mm. affects our body and our body affects our soul. So we know mm. there's, there's a reciprocal interaction mm. that's happening. But how is that taking place? And I didn't find anything that really answered the question for me. I asked. I asked some scholars who study philosophy and I, they, they provided answers. And I'm not saying the answers are wrong. It's just... My, it didn't, like, in my understanding, it didn't satisfy me completely, right? So mm. I was wondering if you uh, had run into this discussion before. You mean the discussion of the, of the body and the soul? Yeah, how they interact, like, like the, the process of interaction. So we know, we know they influence each other. We know, like, for instance, if I overeat at, at iftar and I eat this huge yeah. meal, I'm going to be yeah. lazy in worship. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. if I if I worship a lot and I really connect with God and I have this spiritual uplifting, my body might feel more energized. Like there is there is a interaction. Right. And the food I eat inter like the food that I eat. If I eat haram food, that's going to affect my soul. So there is an yeah. interaction. I think that the, 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 the basic or the first place that I would go to is the Islamic understanding, the Quranic understanding of the human being is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the, the, the nafs and part of the human being. The nafs is the soul. That soul can be of different types, right? It can be Amara. The soul can be the Wama. There are different hadiths about the different types of soul. I believe it goes up to seven. So that's one aspect of the human being. The other aspect that the Quran talks about is the qulub, the hearts, uh, which is and the fuad, which is the valve of the heart, right? Which is where uh, devotions or attachments lie. Then you have the aql, which is the mind through which uh, uh, the rational processes and the intellectual processes happen. Then you have the badan, which is the body through which the arkan, through which the actions are performed. So. One of the main distinguishing features of postmodern and post-enlightenment philosophy is the view of the human being becomes compartmentalized, right? You have Kant who comes and says, no, it's just the sense and the sense perception. 
And that really ends any kind of extra material, non-material conception of the world uh, in the West and in the, in, 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 you know, in the post, post-enlightenment world, right? Uh, and then you have things that are happening in society, be that Jeremy Bentham, uh, be that the, uh, the rise of institutions in a Hegelian way, the different trends within philosophy that lead us to um, compartmentalize and divide everything. While in the postmodern, in the, in the pre-modern world, in the world between, before that, things were unified, things were general, things were one. So the inside, the human being, is not devoid of these actions. It is not technically how the mind and body, uh, the body and the soul, it's that the body and the soul are one part of the human being. Then there is the mind, then there is the aql, or the qalb, which is the heart. All this compromises the human being. So any kind of comfort, any kind of cure, any kind of uh, presence, any kind of uh, approach has to be holistic. It has to be holistic, right? And the difference between Islam and the other faiths, for example, uh, the faith that becomes really popular and is very popular here is Buddhism and Hinduism because they don't have any kind of a doctrinal burden on the participant. You can be whatever you want and just come to this yoga. You can do whatever you want and come to uh, Buddhist meditation. You know, um, you're okay being a racist, but let's just do Buddhist meditation for now. Mm-hmm. And Islam is not that way. Islam's approach is holistic. Islam's approach is for the body, this is the fasting. For the soul, for the nafs, this is the control that you have on the desires. For the aql, you have the knowledge. Right? Yeah. So this is, when, when, when we talk about these different things, I always come back to the universal one that is the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala within Islamic philosophy, within Islamic belief. And that kind of helps us say, okay, we are ignoring one part for the other. Hmm. Yeah, like, I agree with that 100%, right? So definitely our our overall focus should be on the human being holistically as as a combination of all these different dimensions. And then we look at how do we utilize these different dimensions to get closer to God? Like, obviously, that's the, the focus. and That's the ultimate that's goal. That's the yeah. priority is, is perfection, happiness, and proximity to Allah. Yes. 100%. 100%, right? Yeah. But when we're looking... So when we do look at these individual dimensions separately, right? Because you can look at them separately and try to dive into them and examine them. I... Maybe the you know the there wouldn't be that much benefit to that to that as as to looking at it holistically, but when we right. do look at it individually, we do see that all right these different dimensions some of them are immaterial some of them are material they have different characteristics, and mm-hmm. they interact with one another in order to reach that perfection or go away from God like the the way that we utilize all of these could either take us closer to God or or further away from it. Now, that being said. I like, for instance, I'll give you one of the one of the answers that I found. I forgot the um, the scholar, the philosopher who mentioned it, an Islamic philosopher. I want to say Mullah Sadra, but I could be wrong. It could be someone else. And what they said is yes. So the soul being an immaterial entity, the body being a material entity, they cannot directly influence one another. So what happens is this third entity is created, mm. and it's kind of like an in-between entity and the soul connects to that and the mind and the body connects to it and the process of kind of inf- of interaction or influence right. stems from this third being, right? And they have a term for that being that has slipped my mind as well. But for me, like, the reason that I've had problems with that and, and also between with, with Allah as well. So there's the yeah. discussion about how did Allah, who's an immaterial entity, how did he create the material realm? Like, right. the process. Man, obviously, he did, but what was right. the process? And then they, they create that that being, that, that intermediary being that's, you know, Khalq al-Awwal or the Aql or Nur Muhammadiyah or whatever you want to term it. Right, right. Has the qualities of, of Allah and immateriality, but is also created so is able to Directly there, right. There's no problem of the coupling. So what you're saying is the coupling of the immaterial and the material happens within everything. Mm. 
It happens within all creation. It happens within all uh, all creation. Everything is 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 existent at that level and at the physical level. There is no uh, uh, how do I say this? There is no difference. There is no problem when the soul couples with the, the the ruh, let's say, which is the material, which is from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala as a creation, mm. couples with the body, mm. which creates the human being or which is part of the human being. Death is the parting. Right of that coupling, and then resurrection is the is the rejoining of that of the body and the soul again because we do believe in in material resurrection, yes. right? We believe in Ma'ad Jismani in Islam uh, in in the school of Ahlul Bayt, and we believe that you will inhabit the the permanent abode with this body, mm. right? So it's the coupling and the, and the, it's not a. a it's part of creation. Yes, we can look at the technicalities, but I'm just pointing out the fact that that it is not strange and it is not uh, uh, beyond the power of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala to to bring the the immaterial and the material together, because He's transcendent and He is imminent. Right? He is present uh, with the material wherever He's with you, wherever you are, and He is Himself in a place which no one else can access. So that duality of one. Uh, not two is, is is certainly present in creation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, a hundred percent. There's no issue with it. I mean, it, it occurs. So obviously, Allah created the universe. Obviously, right. our soul and our and our bodies exist, and our soul will be taken away and put back into like. There, there's no question with with that reality. That reality does exist. Mm-hmm. The only question was around the the process, and I don't know, like. The creation of the third being, that intermediary being that that um, kind of Allah works through or our soul and body work through. For me, that doesn't, I don't know, it, it hasn't sat well with me, in, you know, rationally speaking yet. I have to think about it more. But the reason being is like, I'm thinking, all right, if, there, if it's immaterial, it has the same problems that with touching. Exactly. Like, and if it's, it's material, it seems like it's is a it quick fix. Is it wujud or mahi or something in between? When yeah. it's something in between, where is it coming from? Yes. Exactly. And, and this is the, part, the, the, the problem of speculative philosophy is the same. is You end up creating something which has more problems than the first thing to begin with. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's, that's been, I don't know, I've been, I've been contemplating that for all a while. Of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Every every once in a while it comes up in discussion and I'm like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you you maybe you pursue the path of Kashf and Shuhud and you reach knowledge about it. <laughs> I have up my spirituality a lot in that one. So, oh. <laughs> so anyways, say thank you so much for Allah, um Allah. for invi- oh. for accepting this invitation and participating in this podcast. It was a great discussion, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, um, it was great to reconnect with you. Yes. 100%. Inshallah, we'll, th- through this, through this, uh, this grace YouTube channel I've created, Alhamdulillah, I'm reconnecting with everyone and I'm having I'm happy conversation. It's the, yeah, it's the yeah. best. It's, it's, even, even, even if no one watches it, for me it's good. So I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah, Zakallah khair, may Allah increase you and may Allah reward you and, and may Allah give you the best in this and the next world, Inshallah. Thank you so much. What? You haven't subscribed yet? Mate, get on the ball. Subscribe to the channel.